there was a drought for three and a half years in the nation of Israel. And it is noticeable that the first thing that Prophet Elijah did to end this drought is to repair the broken altar of the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 30. And the Bible says, Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. In this year, in this era of drought in our churches, in our ministries, in our personal life, there might be some drought and feeling of dryness and hunger and thirst in our spirit and in our atmosphere. And I believe that one of the main things that we should do as a church and as an individual is to repair the broken altar of the Lord. We have been looking for rain, but I think that God is just waiting for us to go back to our altars and repair the broken altar of the Lord. And I'm not talking about the altars that we see every Sunday in front of our pews, but I'm talking about our personal altar. I'm talking about our relationship with God. I'm talking about our prayer life and our fasting and our devotion to Him. We need to repair those altars because it is where the fire of God would fall. And without the altar that is being repaired, without a repaired altar in our life, the, the fire of the Holy Ghost is nowhere to be found in our life. So it is a challenge today in our church in our personal life as a Christian, we need to repair the broken altar of the Lord. We need more praying. We need more fasting. We need more devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ. The men and women whom God mightily used, as recorded in the scripture, are men and women of prayer. They became great, especially in the sight of God, not because of their skills or material possessions, but because they had a great prayer life. Jesus Christ, our perfect example, spent his first 40 days and 40 nights of ministry in prayer and fasting. Before he began calling his 12 disciples, he first spent a night of secluded prayer on a mountain. He especially recognized the necessity of prayer and fasting in the realm of ministry when he said to his disciples, Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Nehemiah prayed and fasted after hearing the negative report from Jerusalem before making a critical attempt to express his request to the king of Persia. He prayed and asked God's favor upon him. Throughout the days of the rebuilding of the wall, he also committed himself to prayer. Moses, one of the greatest leaders of the Old Testament, who had a very challenging role in the history of Israel because of the attitude of the people whom he had led, he was a man of pray. In God's several attempts to kill all the children of Israel in the wilderness, it was recorded that he went on praying to ask God to ask for his forgiveness. When the children of Israel murmured against him for lack of food and water, he meekly talked to God in prayer to ask for provision. Abraham, what we know as the father of faith of the Jews and probably Christians and Muslims too, he was a man of prayer. He portrayed the power of intercessory prayer when he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah through prayer. We can go on and on and attest to the fact that prayer makes ordinary people extraordinary. Skills and wealth affect time, but I believe that prayer affects eternity. And I love reading biographies, especially of people who charted a course in the history of the church. 
the lives of the following people will probably remind me of Charles Spurgeon's observation. Whenever God determines to do a great work, He first sets His people to pray. One of the examples of these pioneers is John Wesley. He founded the Methodist movement in the Church of England with his brother Charles. He wrote his observations and encounters with the Moravians, who had a significant impact on his life, leading directly to his spiritual experience. If we look back to where these Moravian missionaries came from, we would attest to the fact that prayer accomplishes great things in the spiritual realm. The Moravian community in Saxony in 1727 commenced a round-the-clock prayer watch that continued non-stop for over a hundred years. It is recorded that 65 years following the start of this prayer vigil, the small Moravian community had sent 300 missionaries to different parts of the world. Evan Roberts was known by some as a lunatic. He gave himself to fervent prayer and intercession so much that his colleagues made fun of him. There was even a time that people saw him beside the road while uttering deep sighs as his lips moved without the sound of words. Someone said of him, We usually had a great reading and prayer together before we put out the lamb. Then I could hear Evan calling and groaning in the spirit. Despite the criticisms, Evan faithfully met God in prayer. The hours and tears he invested in the kingdom of God for intercession were not wasted. He became a great revivalist and pioneered an awakening in Wales. Charles Parham, known as the father of Pentecost, was also a man of prayer. He personally believed that true repentance must take place within a convert's heart. He sought this experience through much prayer until he finally got a hold of an encounter with God. When God was trying to call him to preach, Charles suffered from high fever and had been bedridden for several months. His condition often made him unable to think of words to pray, that he just began reciting prayers from the Bible such as the Lord's Prayer. When he finally yielded to the call of God, God healed him and his body was recovered. William Seymour greatly admired John Wesley's fervency towards prayer, reading the Word of God, repentance, and holiness. Seymour's meetings usually consisted of hours of prayer as they sought the baptism of the Holy Spirit. People were born of the Spirit and experienced healings and miracles in that area as prayer conditioned an atmosphere for God to freely move. In a humble, skidroll-like setting at Azusa Street, the prayers of the people continued to usher revival. The meetings they had ran continuously for 10 to 12 hours. There was no program. They just began with a song or a testimony and spoke sermons inspired in English or in tongues with interpretation. The Azusa Street meetings filled with the prayers of Seymour and the saints became the catalyst of the Pentecostal movement. How prayer played a significant role in the lives of the greatest men and women of God implies that it takes a consistent prayer life to become great in the sight of God. Prayer, not skills and material possessions, has always been the oil that keeps the wheel of revival turning. When God decides to do something great, He doesn't search for perfect people. He looks for imperfect people who would believe and yield themselves to the power of prayer. God doesn't change. The Bible says He is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
if he can send a chariot of revival to the ends of the earth before, he can do it again today. The Spirit of God is still available today as it was during the day of Pentecost. The issue is not revival. I believe that the issue is lack of prayer. If God's people would humble themselves again, turn from their wicked ways, seek God's face, and start weeping between the porch and the altar, the fire of revival is always ready to sweep into our prayer closets and increasingly consume our lives, our churches, and our communities in our world. It takes a prayer life to become somebody in the kingdom of God. It takes a prayer life to fulfill a desire for turning the world upside down for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. A man of prayer could accomplish greater things for a short period of time compared to a man who doesn't kneel before God in prayer in his lifetime. I would like to tell you some of the importance of prayer in the ministry. People say that money gets the world go around, but in the kingdom of God, I believe, prayer gets the ministry go around. Prayer and ministry are and ought to be inseparable. We cannot effectively minister to other people without a prayer life. Prayer is one of the most powerful tools that God has given to His ministers to do kingdom exploit. There is no power like that of a prevailing prayer of Abraham pleading for Sodom, Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night, Moses standing in the breach, Hannah intoxicated with sorrow, David heartbroken with remorse and grief, Jesus in sweat of blood. Add to this list from the records of church, your personal observation and experience, and always there is the cause of passion unto blood. Such prayer prevails. It turns on ordinary mortals into men and women of prayer. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. Oh, what power do we have through prayer? Number one importance of prayer, I believe, in the ministry is that prayer creates an atmosphere for revival. As Jesus and his disciples were going to a city, the people from the village brought a blind man to him and asked him for healing. What happened next is no worry. Jesus waited until he finally led the blind man out of the village before he performed the miracle. Why did Jesus Christ wait until they were outside the village to perform the miracle? Why did he allow the man to return to Bethsaida? The story clearly implies that there is a certain type of atmosphere where God cannot freely move. Jesus is not always attracted to our needs. His eyes, the Bible says, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Revival and the wonders of the outpouring of God's Spirit upon all flesh are a promise. Nevertheless, God delays revival until He sees the ministers of the Lord specially weep between the porch and the altar. He is waiting for His people to turn to Him with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. For only those who sow in tears can reap the joy of revival. Or revival that took place as recorded in the scriptures was a product of prayer and fasting. Before the Jewish people were spared from the planned annihilation, Esther asked Mordecai to go gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me 
neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. God did not destroy Nineveh for a period of time as he had planned, because the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them in Jonah chapter 3 verse 5. When God first poured out His Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the upper room were filled with people who were all with one accord in one place in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. The 120 people were praying for it was the third hour of the day according to Acts chapter 2 verse 15, which was the Jewish hour of morning prayer. Prayer is the key to revival. A minister who doesn't have a prayer life will never experience the move of God in his or her ministry. We may accomplish some things through our knowledge and skills, but a ministry that is not spirit-filled and prayer-filled cannot accomplish great things in the kingdom of God. If there's no weeping, there's no reaping. If there's no groaning, there's no growing. Vestamangan warns us, a dried-eyed church in the hell-bound world will never have revival. We should seek to make our churches not only air-conditioned, but also prayer-conditioned. I don't care if it is the biggest church with the most wonderful facility, but what I care about is that that church should always be filled with prayer and tears of the saints of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second point, prayer unlocks the windows of heaven. If we try to provide funds for the ministry, we would soon be out of business, I believe. If our ministry is truly God-sized, we cannot sustain it by man-sized resources. It needs God-sized provision to keep it going. What we are advancing and building in the ministry is not our kingdom, but God's kingdom. We are not the kings and queens of this kingdom. Jesus is the king, and because he is the king, he is the one responsible to provide for his domain. There's nothing wrong with fundraising programs and financial strategies. I do a lot of those. However, when we begin to replace the one who is really sitting on the throne because we think we are obliged to solve the problems of the kingdom, we only insult the real king. Our job is not to provide. Our job is to seek the kingdom of God first and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto us. Our job is to take no thought for the morrow. Paul gave us an advice, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. There is no shortage in heaven. There will never be a time when God is not able to supply our needs. When we seek the kingdom of God and acknowledge that Jehovah Jireh sits on the throne, Jesus said, All these things shall be added unto thee. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God will give us our daily bread if we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Prayer is the connecting rod between our needs and the unlimited resources of heaven. It is the earth's power to bring heaven's power down. Too many times we miss His divine provision because we ask Him not. We ought to embrace and live by the wonderful promise of Jesus. Ask, and it shall be given you. 
Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Third, prayer give us a sense of direction. Acts chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer. They had this motivation. They had this inspiration to pray in that hour of prayer. And on their way to the temple, a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I not. But such as I have, I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Notice that Peter and John's intention was to go into the temple for the hour of prayer. Because they were in the spirit of prayer. God ushered them into a door he opened for them to minister. What happened at the beautiful gate tells us that God is able to give us direction in the ministry if we know how to pray. When prayer is our top agenda as ministers, God makes us sensitive to the needs and opportunities to minister. Jesus described the life of those who are born of the Spirit when he discussed the doctrine of the new birth with Nicodemus. And he said, The wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but can not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the things the Spirit has in store for us. It is like a wind. We may not know and see it, but we feel it. We don't have the ability to tell what the Spirit will lead us, but we know that God is leading us somewhere. Paul explained this further in his epistle, I had not seen. Ear has not heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things which God had prepared for them that love him. But God had revealed them unto us by his Spirit. The things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned. We would miss what God wants us to have or do if we don't walk in the Spirit, especially through prayer. Ministry is a spiritual enterprise. We cannot be an effective minister if we would try to run God's business through carnal means. It may take years, but we will be lost in the ministry if we do our own business in the temple, which in the first place should be a house of prayer. We would miss what God wants us to do if we don't know how to pray. Often God doesn't open doors for us because we don't choose to open the doors of our prayer closets. The next point is that prayer invigorates our relationship with God. John the Baptist lived an obscure life in the wilderness. He dedicated himself to God and didn't touch wine. His hair grew uncut from the day of his birth. He spent countless days and nights in prayer and fasting. The boisterous wind, the fervent heat, and cutting sand became his companions. Clothed with a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and with honey running on his beard, he came out of the wilderness and confronted the established religiosity of his time, saying, Repent. John the Baptist's relationship with God was absolute. 
His relationship with God, which he strengthened in the desert, made his ministry so powerful that even King Herod was afraid of him. His devotion made him sensitive to the Spirit and also enabled him to confirm and proclaim who the Lamb of God was. John's life signifies that our relationship with God produces a type of power that we need in the ministry. Brother Beckton once wrote, The minister's private life with God is the secret of Christian character. It is the source of power for service. It is the lifeline of all that the minister must be and do. We are human beings and not human doings. We therefore ought to become someone before we can do something in the kingdom of God. Our relationship with God and our ministry are truly inseparable. What happens in our private life inevitably affects what happens in our ministry. If we keep our relationship with God healthy, the things that we do for the kingdom of God will be healthy. And there is no other way to invigorate any type of relationship but through communication. There must be a continuous flow of communication between God and us, and we can only fulfill this flow through prayer. Something happens when we pray to God and let Him speak to us. Life energy begins to flow, and our relationship grows and remains healthy. If we neglect our prayer life, our relationship with God suffers. When our relationship is not in good shape, our ministry begins and will begin to deteriorate. Last point is that prayer releases the spirit of humility and submission in the ministry. Pride is the voice within our spirit. I heard Brother Woodward telling this. The pride in our spirit says, I am in charge. Ministries plummet. When people start hearing this voice and begin effacing God from the picture. Remember that Lucifer lost his ministry when he said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be the most high. While pride is the voice that says, I am in charge. Prayer says, God, you are in charge. People who acknowledge that God is the Lord of every situation know how to kneel before Him in prayer. I believe that a person of prayer is someone who realizes that God is still on the throne and He is not. If Jesus is truly the Lord of our ministry, he ought to be the go-to person in our life. When trials come, we go to Him in prayer. When we face difficulties, we go to Him in prayer. When things are well done and people applaud us, we go to Him and give the credit to Him through prayer. He is not the last resort, but our first option as we do the work of the ministry. In developing a prayer life, I would say that prayer is a spiritual affair. And we must understand that our flesh is naturally disinclined to do the spiritual things. The Bible says that the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. So that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Galatians chapter 5 verse 17. Our spirit indeed is willing but our flesh doesn't want to pray. The only way to develop a prayer life is to pray. 
doesn't sound like a big revelation to us. But the real key to a fruitful prayer life is just to simply have one. The real men and women of prayer are not those who talk about prayer, nor those who say they believe in prayer, but those who actually pray. Knowing that the way to develop a prayer life is to simply pray, we will discuss in this episode some tips that I would give here on how we can engage ourselves more in prayer. Number one, we have to make it personal. Prayer should not be a duty that we ought to do, but an activity and a habit that we want to do. It doesn't happen automatically because, as we've discussed here, our human nature doesn't like the things of God. But my point here is, it is to have a mindset that prayer is not a duty. Wrong thinking leads to a wrong behavior. Right thinking, on the other hand, leads to a right action. In Solomon's own word, it goes like this. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So we have a control over what we think. We can alter our behavior towards prayer through having right thoughts concerning prayer. If we think and we we continuously uh, remind ourselves that prayer is not a duty that I would do, but something that I want to do because I have a relationship with God, then it changes our perspective. It changes our motivation in prayer. You know, I would give you a simple illustration here. If we talk to our spouse because it is just a duty that to do every single day, communication becomes boring and relationship dies. Nevertheless, if communication becomes a personal preference, an activity that we want and we enjoy doing, but the passion increases, resulting into a desire for more talking. Likewise, if we change our thinking and make prayer as something we personally want to do, we increase our passion for communion with God and we would long for more time to pray. Second point and second tip here, set a schedule. If we would consider all the things we need to do, we don't really have any time to pray. And that's the truth. Our time to pray must be taken from the time that we have for something else. We cannot fit God in our schedule, but we can fit our schedule around God. When I began assisting my pastor at the United Pentecostal Church in the Philippines in 2010, the activities that I had to do, it just skyrocketed. I was the teen's pastor and I was the vice president of the youth department at that time. And not to mention that I have school responsibilities that I was pursuing because of my degree. There were times that I find myself spiritually dry because I had neglected my prayer life. I finally decided to determine what my priorities should be. I put my prayer life on top of that list and I began setting a special time to pray. I want to cross out all the items in my to-do list every day. However, because I determined that prayer is my priority, I learned how to call for a ceasefire in the midst of my busyness and enter into my prayer closet to commune with God. It's still a war, and there are times that I slack off for even one day and I find myself back on the slippery slope of busyness and under the tyranny of the urgent. But if we are willing, God will certainly help us. We don't have time for everything, but we do have time to obey the Lord today. Third 
tip is have a place, set a place of prayer. If we don't know where we meet God, if we don't have a specific location on a regular basis through prayer, I believe that it is most likely that we don't have a consistent prayer life. Let me ask you this question, and or maybe let's ask this question to ourselves. Where is our place where we meet God every single day? If we don't have one, we most likely have no consistent prayer life. One of the first things Jesus commanded was that there should be a place of prayer. While it is the tr- true that the whole earth is the Lord's and there is no place where our prayers may not be heard, How Christ went into a solitary place tells us that a place of prayer is significant in developing a prayer life. On his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples, But when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. A prayer closet or a secret place where you meet God is necessary for us to abide under the shadow of the Almighty. What is that secret place? I was reading this book called Book of Mysteries and Jonathan Kahn writes this. Where is the secret place? It is where you make it. It is where you go to be with Him. It is the place that can contain only one person. Just you and the presence of God and nothing else. So the secret place must be totally separate, totally secret, and totally apart from the rest of your life, from the world, from even the things of God. It's the most important place you can dwell, for it is there that you'll find His presence, hear His voice, and see His glory. For they only reside in the most holy place, the secret place. It is impossible to be in a specific location every time we want to pray. However, having a place of prayer means setting an environment in which we can eliminate distractions and focusing on God through passionate prayer. Number four, we have to withdraw ourselves. In Luke chapter 5 verse 15 to 16, But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And he, Jesus Christ, withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. If we would carefully study Jesus' ministry on earth, we will notice many occasions when he withdrew himself from the crowd to pray. Before Jesus bravely faced the mob that arrested him, he was praying with his face on the ground in a solitary place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Prior to the calling of the twelve apostles, he spent an all-night prayer to God on a mountain. He went into a mountain apart to pray, and was there alone before the disciples saw him walking on the sea in the fourth watch of the night. If we want to be effective in the ministry, there ought to be times when we withdraw ourselves, not just from our business, but also from the people. Ministry is all about people. I know that. But however, before we can ever minister to other people, God must first minister to us through our personal relationship with Him. I love prayer meetings. I love the atmosphere created when the people of God begin to gather and pray together. We must be reminded, however, that congregational prayer is never enough to sustain our personal relationship with God and to provide power, especially in our ministry. I was overwhelmed with the daily devotions we had when I was at the Bible college where I attended. 
Everyone was so fervent in prayer because everybody wants to be there and was there to pray. Students were speaking in tongues, praying in the Holy Ghost, and the presence of God had always been powerful during those services. One day, a student approached me and asked me how I developed my prayer life, and I explained to him the importance of personal devotion and told him that the students will not always be there to remind him and to be with him for prayer. In the ministry, there will surely be times when we will be alone and no one will be there to call for a prayer meeting or pray with us if we did not find time to withdraw ourselves from the crowd and set aside a time to pray inside our personal prayer closets we would find ourselves in a spiritual struggle when this situation comes it is always a wise decision not to trade our walk with god for our work for the kingdom of god effective ministry is a combination of hard work and fervent relationship with God. But if we have to be without one, choose the relationship that you have with God. And the last point is pray without ceasing. While reminding the Thessalonians that no one knows the time of the Lord's coming, Paul concluded his letter with a series of brief reminders of how they can remain awake and alert, focusing together on living for God. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, to 22. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for it is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despite not the prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. When I was reading this portion of the scripture for the first time, I was wondering how a person can pray without ceasing. We could easily deduce what Paul meant by rejoicing evermore, or quench not the spirit, or in everything give thanks and his other admonitions. But how can we pray without ceasing? Pray without ceasing doesn't mean, I believe, that we must always be mumbling prayers. It means constantly recurring and not continuously occurring. Warren Wiersbe made a comment on this verse and he said, We are to keep the receiver off the hook and be in touch with God so that our praying is part of a long conversation that is not broken. As ministers, our connection with God should not be broken. Our prayers ought not to cease inside our prayer closets, but must be a part of our life, like just the breath in our lungs, until our life becomes a prayer in itself. At least an hour of concentrated prayer is necessary, I believe. But praying without ceasing means going beyond the confines of time and letting the spirit of prayer be within us anywhere and at any time. God knows the desires of our hearts. Our Father knows our needs before we even ask. He responds to the spirit of prayer even when our voice is silent. We are living in one of the darkest hours of the earth. No government program or religious movement can alter the destiny of the world. It will not get better but darker. What the world needs today is the church whose ministries are effectively impacting people leading them to something beyond the things that will soon vanish away. For a ministry to be effective, it doesn't need more or better machinery, but more and better praying. 
The church needs no new programs, but men and women whom the Spirit can use. Prayerful ministers, people who are mighty in prayer. We need ministers with a conviction that it is a sin against God if they cease to pray for other people. We need people who will weep between the porch and the altar until the Spirit invades all flesh. We need true ministry that is touched, enabled, and made by God inside a prayer closet. E.M. Bounds warns us that without prayer, we create death and not life. The minister who is feeble in prayer is feeble in life-giving forces. The sins of the world bring death to humanity, but the prayers of the saints and the ministers of God will bring life to the people. Every church and ministry must have the right priorities if revival is expected to happen. Too many people are more concerned about the sound system, temperature inside the sanctuary, or the wrong grammar of the preacher than about empty prayer rooms and cobweb baptistries. Let us always remind ourselves that prayer has always been the supreme need of the hour. Prayer, again, has always been the supreme need of the hour. Let me close this episode in a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the words that we have heard, the conviction of the Word of God. And I pray, O God, for the spirit of prayer and intercession to come not just to our listeners, but to everyone, especially in our generation today. Let this generation be not prayerless, but prayerful. Let the ministers of God weep between the porch and the altar. I pray, O God, for a spirit that will stir us, O God, and bring us on our knees to repair the broken altars of the Lord, not just in our churches, but in our personal prayer life, O God, our prayer closets. I pray, O God, that you invade our prayer lives, O God, with with burden and with passion, O God. Set a fire down in our soul, in our spirit, and let these prayers, O God, be heard in the throne room of God. I pray that you raise a generation of prayerful people, prayerful men and women of God who will do spiritual exploits in the kingdom of God. I pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. God bless you.